0: Welcome to the XY Advisor podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app.
1: How can I find the stability needed for long-term success? by investing with the world's largest active fund manager, who oversees over 2.3 trillion US dollars worldwide, adapting and growing across the globe, with more than 340 long-standing portfolio managers and analysts that have earned unrivaled access to the companies they invest in. Can I find a firm that values long-term stability like I do? With Capital Group, I can.
0: Welcome back to the XY Advisor Podcast. I'm Fraser Jack, and today I am joined by an absolute legend of the risk insurance industry, Russell Collins. Hello, Russell.
1: Hi, Fraser. Thanks for uh, inviting me in.
0: Fantastic to have you. Now, do you want to give the listeners who don't know who you are a quick overview of who you are?
1: Well, from the industry point of view, I joined the industry in 1971, and I practiced only in the risk insurance area right through till my... Handing in my license, so to speak, on the 30th of June, 2010. Um, about 15 years before that, I started to be coming involved in mentoring, training, running training sessions, and so on in the risk area. And so, when uh, I finished as a advisor, so to speak, I've maintained that practice of um, training and so on right through up until today, so to speak. It's something that I enjoy. I'm very passionate about the risk insurance area. Um, it's been hammered a lot in the last whatever decade or so. But I still think that um, the role of the advisor broadly is the most important job in the industry, in the financial services industry and from my point of view in the uh, risk area until the advisor submits an application form. And nobody in the life insurance company has a job, so to speak. That's the importance of the role. And I still think that um, there are a lot of people in our industry that may see it as a job rather than in my case as a vocation. And you know because you've been in this business before, the relationship between you and the client just becomes that of a, a friendship that if it's done well it'll go on for forever and ever. So, um, just to let you know, because um, off camera you, you asked me about where I am, I two, two years ago my wife and I have been married, uh, we've married on the 7th of September 1963, so you can do the sums there, 58 years, we have four children, Matthew whom you know, um, joined me in 1998 as my succession plan, who's done really, really good um, in that time, we have... Uh, a daughter, Gabrielle, then another son, Justin, then a daughter, Kristen. And um, Kristen was responsible, if you if come to this, for really getting me on board in terms of doing the audio book. But up here, I because I have um, some free time as well, I continue to do the mentoring and, you know, with Zooming and so on like that. And I'm always, I just feel there are so many great opportunities in our industry uh, for peak Particularly for the new uh, advisors coming in. Uh, luckily for them, they, they'd come in with no baggage, so to speak. And um, if I take Matthew's son, Timothy, my grandson, when he, he first started with me a few, I just forget now, maybe five years ago, um, he used to come to my, my place weekly, 7 a.m. in the morning, and uh, for an hour, he would record everything and then he would take it back and don't ask me how he did it, but he would put on his computer what we talked about as a sort of a, uh, as a guide. So if something comes up, he would, he knows he's got it indexed. He knows where to go and so on like that.
0: Fantastic. So you obviously a, a, a very long career, a uh, vocation, I should say, um, with regards to uh, your, your experience, um, obviously, uh, from a time when, when the soft skills was a very, very important part, and it still is a very important part of the job, but a part that uh, you want to make sure that you can help pass on and, and and certainly doing that with all of the different things you've been doing from keynote speaking to, you know, training and, and mentoring and coaching people. Uh, let's go, let's, I mean, obviously you've seen a lot of change. I mean, when, uh, let, let's quickly run through the concept of, obviously you've been through the idea of um, people used to work as tight agents, um, then moving through to, you know, there was a broker um, period and then obviously into financial advice. Tell us about that transition those transition periods.
1: Well, when I first started in 1971, everybody was um, an agent of a major company. In my case, it was the Prudential. And so you just sold their products. You were trained by them. And um, the question of... Uh, for example, with the Prudential, my wanting to go and do business with another insurance company was frowned upon. Well, I mean, you got the, you got fired for it on that basis there. But one interesting thing that a lot of people aren't aware of, Fraser, is that in those days, if you – we had a thing called twisting. You know the, the – uh, yep,
0: if the term. Yep. If
1: I come across you and I take you away from the AMP to the Prudential, if – The advisor at the AMP found out about that. He tells his manager, who rings my manager, and the commission for that particular policy is then rebated to the AMP advisor. So that's how strict we were on what I would think like a pretty ethical thing in those days. But after a while, if I could just say, um, in my case, in 1978, I had come to a stage where I had learnt. I couldn't learn anything more. I, I, I must say this: the managers trained you in that day. The problem with that was that if it was if it was me training them, I trained them as Russell Collins would do something. And so, what I found in my agency, with about a dozen people, is that my character, my values, my whatever, were different. To everybody else in the thing, but it's this is the way that Mister X did it, and so I found that extremely difficult. In those days, I was fortunate enough to have access to um, a very successful advisor then by the name of Bruce Flick, and so I he and when he heard I was going to the industry, he he put the word out if if I need any help. So I went to see him, and he used to assist me a lot in advancing my knowledge and and. Uh, when I went to my first million-dollar roundtable meeting in 1973, that's when I found um, the major problem with the training that I'd done is that there the, advisors talk, the speakers who were advisors spoke about how they would ask people what they wanted rather than tell them what they needed. And that became the, the secret to that was the, the next MDRT meeting I went to was a presentation called The Miracle of the Probe, and what that then put to my mind, uh, this is that aha moment, so, and so it was the questions you asked to get the responses you needed from people. So what I'm getting at there is that you, I developed... Uh, and I learnt this obviously from MDRT, what what I call penetrating questions. So the rule was, ask a penetrating question, listen for the answer, and then record the answer in an orderly manner. So penetrating questions one where people have to think before they answer, instead of a yes-no type thing. So like an example of a penetrating question might be, in event of your death, would you like your family's uh, current lifestyle to continue? And that person would say, let's assume they said yes. Now, the other thing that I learned, I only learned this maybe 20 years ago, after I, no, it was before I finished practicing, listening with the ear of the heart. Now, in my book, I talk about the importance of attentive listening. But attentive listening is like, Yes, it's more than yes, no. It's what is that person saying? But listening with the ear of the heart, if I just go back to that question and the person says, well, I want, yeah, I want it to continue, I would say why, for example. And they would say, well, the last thing in the world I would want is for my wife and family or whatever it was to be without what I've created for them at this point in time. So what I did in the recording was that I'd write down uh, verbatim what, I gave you a lengthy response, I gave you a lengthy response then, but the, the usual response was, well, I want my family's lifestyle to continue. And then I would send a file note back after the meeting, which I, very nobody used to do that in those days, but I would send a file note back and I would have the question that I asked there and their response. So what I found was that, and I didn't know this till many years after when people would tell me, is that when they got the file note, and let's assume it was a Saturday morning, they poured a cup of coffee, they sat down, they started to read the file note. They started to see in there, because I'm repeating what they told me, almost always questioning whether they had enough life insurance to do the job. And quite often many people, when they came into the office, this is as I got more experience, they say, look Russ, before we start, Fraser Jack, he's a great a great friend of mine, and uh, I'm seeing you because he suggested it, but he doesn't know this, because uh, we don't discuss this. But I've got I own a million dollars of life insurance. Now that never happened in the early days. I'm just trying to give you an example, maybe more today. Now that oh, he he is then saying, I think I'm I'm covered, and so I like that. So in my situation, I go into more depth in the book, but the opening of the meeting, what do you say after you say hello sets the tone for the rest of the meeting. And so when a person opens it by saying that, you know, what do you do, do you freeze? I would just, in my case, I would thank them for telling me that and just put a note, one million dollars, and then proceed on with what I had prepared. Because preparation is the key and I'm not going to be deterred by that. But that particular person, now when he or she is getting the file note, Because when he said, or he or she said, yes, I want their current lifestyle to continue, I say, well, what sort of a figure would they need to do that? Sometimes people would throw a figure at you that you know even in the small amount of time, yeah, is not going to. So I'd repeat, so as I said in the question, their current lifestyle. Because a luxury once enjoyed quite often becomes a necessity. And so the school that you're sending the children to the ski trips that you take here, all all those things that add up to the lifestyle. And then the million dollars doesn't seem so much, particularly if today they're sitting on a mortgage of $750,000. Am I answering? Are we going where you yeah, want me to go? Yeah, no,
0: that, um, no that's certainly, uh, you, you've sort of Pull got into what i me back if I'm not. You sort of get into the, uh, the, the place that I actually think is what we call values-based or goals-based advice, and there really is, it's understanding what the client really wants, why they really want it, why that's important to them, uh, and then... The, 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 goal, the goal essentially starts to develop itself, the goal of these sorts of things. And then, of course, what's needed after that is the strategy and the product. And, of course, that just flows on from the, is part of the conversation rather than starting with the product, which I guess is a lot of, uh, you know, going back to your tired agent sort of days and, and your original teachings, a lot of it would have been about the product, the product, the product, the product. People need the product.
1: Correct. Um, that's the problem. That was the problem. And that's just what, to your audience, that's what really introduced the financial services reform that began in the uh, mid-1990s, and I think the legislation came out in 2004. But the whole idea of that was to move the industry from a product-driven industry to a, to a um, relationship-type industry.
0: Yeah. Now, now, as that transition took place, I'm thinking uh, obviously um, the, the the I'll go back to the Tide agents. You were you were working for one company. Uh, you were essentially representing the pool of clients that were in that company. Um, It wasn't just a product. And I want to talk to you about what that, you know, what life insurance means to you a little bit later, but um, it's a pool, right? It's a pool of people. We, we, you know, they're all in it. Um, As you said before, there wasn't any twisting because uh, that was frowned upon. Um, That's the
1: word I'd forgotten it. Thank you.
0: (laughs) The twisting, uh, the twisting uh, slash, um, uh, you know, uh, churn we call it these days, um, but it's the idea of it's the idea of taking somebody who already has life insurance and then moving it to a different life insurance product. Uh, now, th- in this way, this kind of gave the insurance companies um, a level of you know control over the the pool itself and the premium pricing, um, which were obviously premium pricing has changed recently and and going through some problems. Um, but this this essentially provided the insurance company some security as. You all moved into brokers in that broker realm and then could start recommending other companies. Uh, that sort of removed that control from the insurance company. So, I think it was probably the start of what we call weird some weird pricing that's going on at the moment.
1: That that sort of crept in. Uh, if I just finish what I said before yep. in uh, 1978, um, I felt that I couldn't go any further with where I was with the Prudential, and so, um. I end up going into joining another life insurance company, which is legal and general in a partnership with then at that time Bruce Flick. So what I'm saying is that uh, when I left the Prudential, if I I was an exception to the rule, but if a advisor left and went somewhere else, they immediately cut off his total any contact with that life with with the Prudential. Say, and all my renewal commissions were withheld. In my case, when I because I was up front to tell the manager where I was going, the state manager, he he said, "Why are you leaving?" I said, "Well, I can't learn anything more here." And he said, "Well, I I can't I I can't disagree with you there." So what he did was that he allowed me to continue to have access to their records without any money, any right. But so most important, going back to the vocation, but at least I was able to maintain the uh, the clients that way. Um. So just, sorry, just come back to the point that you got me to there because I I just wanted to make sure that I answer your question properly.
0: Uh, so the the point was around the concept of um, during that FSR, you mentioned the financial services reform when it took place, and and the control that insurance companies lost. That's throughout right. That okay, parenting. let
1: me come back to that. That was the control thing there. So. Even, even in, in the next company where I went to, it was the same thing. So it wasn't until I, I actually left that partnership and went out into what you just said as an independent where you multi-Asian or call it whatever you like, that you had the freedom that you wanted. But you know, the, the insurance, uh, the clients still followed you where you went. And I think that was built on the relationship because it wasn't the life insurance company you were selling, it was yourself that you're selling there. And I think that um, in today's world, well, you would probably know better than I. Um, that just wouldn't survive with today at the moment. I know the banks were probably the classic example of that. Do you think when that sort of happened? And I think that that just faded off there. So yeah. I think that today's situation, where the advisors should be, and you know, I, I assume they are, given the opportunity to spread the products. Yeah. But nobody, no one life insurance company has. The best products, if you if you want to go down that track, but um, from my perspective, the opportunity today for the people coming in is the choices. The responsibility then is on them to get the right choice, and uh, that's the recommendation list and so on like that.
0: Yep, fantastic. Now, when FSR came in uh, back in two thousand and one, um, the uh, the everybody went to becoming a financial planner or a financial advisor. How was that from, uh, obviously, the, the, the name was different, um, but uh, all of a sudden it's sort of a different different vocation. And, and as you mentioned, people that had been as a vocation or treating their risk insurance as a vocation were now um, classed the, sort of the same as people doing investments. How'd you, how did you get, how'd that go? Well, that's,
1: that's a very good point. Because um, before, I said the uh, purpose behind the legislation was to go from a product-driven industry to, I think I said, relationship it should to an advice driven industry that's what so that's there's a very good point very perceptive of you there um you see in my era if i can say this that uh, prior to that selling started to become a dirty word if i could use that word and i've written articles on this and what was what was in the mind of people then particularly the prof- the professional people if i could say that there were any, any problems with the advisors in those days, it was with people's accountants and with their lawyers. So to the illustration that I used to draw up, two circles put um, one in selling in one and P for the other professional in the other. And I'd say these, these two circles are mutually exclusive. If you sell for a living, you can't possibly be regarded as professional. And if you're a professional... You would never sell for a living. Well, you and I know that every minute of every day, somebody somewhere is selling somebody something. So I learned many years ago, at and it was around that time, that with all the definitions of professional, but the best definition I ever heard was professionals are defined not by the business they're in, but by the way they're in business. Think about that, you see? So the soft skills like it's... I. <laughs> Up until about five years ago, I had to keep with the audiences. I had to keep thinking, don't say selling, just say soft skills. And the master of the soft skills in what I have found certainly in the last uh, two decades is uh, Don Connolly over in the United States. He is, I mean, that's all he does. And he came out uh, out of the financial planning side or the investment side. So, and by the way, that's interesting that you say that because there were many people... My, in, in my peer group that were retreating, you know, prior to that, but almost before 2001, where they were becoming financial planners and, or estate planners or something like this. You know, nobody ever said that they sold insurance for a living. I know that they were very successful when they made the transition because of their selling skills. And I still think that one of the things that's missing in the training programs today, well, I, I can't say today, but I, I can go back even a four or five years ago, where the new entries, the training programs were very heavy on compliance, on product and on technical and very understated in the area of communication skills. And yet, like people buy people. They buy your advice first and they buy your product last and there's daylight in between. And so what is it then that makes your advice first? I mean, everybody, whether you're a, a financial planner or a financialist or whatever, everybody's in the selling business. But what we're selling, what you're selling is advice. I mean, that's the product. That's what the lawyers sell. That's what the accountants sell. That's what the everybody the politicians sell it yeah <laughs> they accuse us <laughs> don't take me down that track yeah can
0: i can i just can i just highlight that people by people because you absolutely that's a, that's i've heard you say that before um, and, uh, and you mentioned Don Connolly. I remember Don Connolly, Connolly speaking uh, in the early 2000s. Um, and it's funny how you remember these anecdotes, but I remember him saying, and this has been classic in the robo advice space. And, and uh, I remember him saying that, uh, you know, the, you're at Sydney airport and you're, you're about to board a flight to LA and there's two planes, one with a pilot and uh, one without, which one are you going to get on?
1: Because, yeah, uh, you know, yep. t-
0: taking off is pretty essential, but uh, pr- t- well, pretty important. The but landing, yeah, landing yeah. Little, yeah.
1: Well, the analogies are brilliant and I think that you have to, you know, just on that point, which is really interesting because I've be- become very friendly with Don and I use a lot of his stuff with because the people, I'm, a lot of them are training or invest and so on. But he, like 2004 was his first presentation at MDRT. He made this comment, he said, In those days, uh, your commissions, he so used the word commission, have nothing to do with how much you know about, he said, investments at that time, but everything to do with the way you can communicate with people who know nothing about investments. And so I just use that with my audiences with your remuneration rather than your commissions have nothing to do with how much you know about life insurance, but everything to do with how well you communicate with people who know nothing about life insurance and that's such a big i mean even as late as uh in the last month i was talking to an advisor and a person said well how much is the insurance going to cost that's all at the start of the meeting and the guy was nearly 80. <laughs> So you don't get into a conversation on product. <laughs> That's what it yep. is. Yep. You've got to steer the conversation.
0: This is a okay. This is a this is a really interesting po- interesting point because I remember coming uh, through, you know, as a, as a young buck, knowing every single thing about every single product because um, because that was the way you learned stuff. You read the you read the CIBs or PDSs uh, and yep. you would uh, you would understand it. And then uh, and then of course, you know, uh, you find out pretty quickly that it doesn't really matter how much you know, and you know. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So this, this whole conversation around becoming a good communicator and in a way a translator of that information to suit the client's way of uh, learning or getting information in, um, which could also vary from client to client.
1: One of the things, by the way, before we are on that point, Don Connolly talks about is the curse of knowledge. And he just, what you just said made me think of that. He says the curse of knowledge is when you, the advisor – so I'm talking to you. Russell can't understand why Jack, why Fraser can't understand what he's saying. Like, don't you get it? You know, so they don't know. And yet what I found was that when when they know, so I'm pointing to you, when you know that I know, that I know what I'm talking about, that's when the acceptance comes. Um, In that first meeting, I talk about four questions that people subconsciously want answered. If do I like you, do I trust you? Are you competent? And are you the sort of person that would be my best interest be for your own? Which is really the fall down situation in what negativity we've had in our industry. Anyway, I won't uh, – you take the lead. I don't um, want to take over.
0: <laughs> very good. Yeah, yeah. So, we could uh, we could talk about these. Now, I want to talk about the fact that uh, I, when it comes to these soft skills and, and the, all of the knowledge and information you had, um, you decided to write a book. So, t- tell us about the book.
1: Well, th- the book, everything that I learn I, – and I say this like I'm in my 50th year in the industry, so to speak. But everything that I learned that, that helped me to do well, I learned from somebody else. And – the hall of learning for me was the Million Dollar Round Table in the United States and the AFA or the whatever we call it that time here in Australia, and taking what I learnt from speakers and then Russellizing it and so that it came out as as my my comment. But in nine, if I'll give you a quick history, in the mid early 90s, I gave a presentation up in Brisbane and uh, at a conference. And, uh, one of the sort of revered, uh, elderly advisors come up to me afterwards and he said, and I hadn't met him. I knew who he was. He said, that was a great presentation. He said, when are we going to see the book? And I said, what book? He said, the book you're going to have to write so that people will understand what you just told them to do and, uh, and take it to another level. Anyway, the point I want to make is that that was in my mind for a while and, um, Many people said the same thing, but in 2009, I was on the FPA National Conference. I was the only risk advice speaker on that. And in the audience was a fellow by the name of Darrell LeBroy. I don't know whether you know him from down in Melbourne. He came up and asked me, you know, how can I learn more about this? By the way, at the same time, um, Peter Sobel was there. Do you know who he is? Yes. Well, he interviewed me afterwards. He said, I'm thinking of getting a business going. So that was, uh, he said, can I have five minutes of your time? Well, two hours later, we sort of moved on, you know. But what Darrell said, he asked me, could I do a workshop for him, his group, which I did in Melbourne. And then at the end of the meeting, he said to me, you know, you you really should write a book. So now this is about five, six years later. That month, that year, he came up to Sydney. He had lunch with me, invited me to lunch. And he said, I want to talk to you about the book. He said, because in our workshop, he said, you frequently told us that we have to speak in real time. So you don't say to somebody, if you should die in the future, because everybody's going to die in the future. You say, if you died yesterday. So he said, the legacy that you, what what you're doing at the moment is sharing a live legacy to your audiences. Like you've captured all this information. He said, if you died yesterday, he said, everything in your head would die with you. So everything that took you like 30 or 40 years to learn is gone. And so that was really the trigger. And um, that, now, that got things going.
0: Now, I really want to highlight this point because it's a very interesting one from anybody. Um, because often financial advice, whether it's investments or superannuation or aged care or whatever it might be, it, it deals with these concepts. A lot of concepts are dealt with in the future. Obviously, um, you know, risk insurance is one of them. But, uh, you know, if you were if you were to retire, if you were retiring, if you retired yesterday, what are we talking about today? If you were, you know, um, told you had to go into an aged care home, now what are some so that idea Correct. Uh, yeah. resonates not just for those people in, around risk insurance, it resonates for any sort of financial advice that's future dated yet. Yeah.
1: Of course, it also could be like most financial plans. In the financial planning industry, if I could – take that as an example every financial plan is built on a time frame so if you're 40 now and we're we're aiming for 25 years or whatever down the road and so i used to draw a horizontal line with an arc over the top and i'd say so here you are today and there's where you want to be but during that period of time i pointed the arc if you died here and then i'd say for example if you died yesterday. Like the plan was completed, it wouldn't. But I would say halfway down, the plan will never complete. How will the plan complete? That's my question. How will it complete? And so that's how I think you invite people into. I mean, uh, they're either going to die or become disabled or retire along the way. So, if the death or the disability occurs, how's the plan going to be completed?
0: Yep, fantastic. Now, now let's get back. Let's get back to the book. Now we sort of got sidetracked a bit. So you started. Uh, you started writing the book. Uh, and- I started
1: writing the book in, um, first of all, in, anyway, it was a couple of years later where I, I had another person say it to me. So I sat down with uh, my wife, Jackie, and I said, you know, this is going to be a, a big commitment, et cetera. And as she was when I joined the industry in 971, then she said she was 100% behind me. So I sat down and because I had four draw four a four drawer filing cabinet filled with presentations that I'd done over like 20 something years I then started to um what I wanted to do Fraser was to like I just leaning over here now and I come up with the book so if if you could see here even now I've got a library of books which were beside me when I worked and I knew that where I had a problem I could go to that book and pull out that chapter so on the on the cover of it, I've got here a communication guide for risk-based. So it's almost as if this is alongside them and they could pull it out and have a look at it. So what I did was to work out, like map out the chapters in the book. So what I did was to follow my process, starting off with preparation, and if you want me to go through that, I can, but each one then became a chapter in the book. And so I had to go through all my presentations and then drag out those sections that applied to preparation, those actions that applied to opening the meeting and so on like that. And then then I moved into, because I had been, um, did reasonably well, very well in the business owner market. See, that for, for in those days, I don't want to. Lose track of this, but there was a progression in the personal market, the mums and dads market, or the employee market. There was, with so much insurance, that an employed person could uh, needed or could afford to pay for. So then, when you you can't do that forever, so then I moved into the business owner market because their needs were always changing. So half the book is on the business owner market, and then at the end of the meeting, uh, uh, when I say the business owner market. I'm talking about a chapter on key person insurance, partnership, that sort of thing there. And then at the end of that, I did a chapter on estate planning because I think not only for the investment side of people but for the um, risk side, there's a lot to be done in the estate planning area. Interestingly, one of the uh, questions in that estate planning area for investors, uh, for the investment advisors, and I learned this at MDRT, is to ask a person when you're asking about their their estate and so on, and you they've got their they already have a, um, a financial plan. Um, who in your will who have you nominated as the investment advisor to your estate? And most people will say no or haven't thought of it. And uh, why well, I'm telling you that I had an experience where I've been uh, looking after. I dabbled a little bit in the financial planning area in the late uh, 80s when everybody was doing it. And after two years, I realized that um, I couldn't be all things to all people. I had one client that I... So I handed over all my quote-unquote superannuation at clients. And one, I'd done uh, a lot of work, like a lot of uh, on insurance bonds. And he said, well, Russ, I'll keep the insurance bonds with you and the other chap can do the shares and stuff like that. And so that's the way it was. And then when he died, um, about a month after he died... I then rang his wife to follow up on that and uh, a meeting. And she said, what do you want the meeting for? I said, well, I want to talk to you about the insurance bonds because some of them were in her name and so on. Mm. And she said, oh. She said, well, look, don't worry about that. He said, She said, so-and-so, that's the other advisor. I've had a meeting with him and he's convinced me that he really should look after everything. So the professional financial planner creates the estate. He should be the person that helps administer the estate. See, if I if I had died yesterday, and my four children each had their own financial advisor, that probably wouldn't be if I was still, then as adults, who's gonna handle, Jackie's and my if we buy it together, who's gonna to handle our estates? So now there's a fight over it. And I learned that from Sarah Calbera, this is a girl, and this, here's why she said it, and let people say it. She said, look, they sort of say, I haven't done it. She said, well, you know, I've been dealing with you for so many years, so I've helped you build this. What I'd like you to do is to include me as the advisor in the event of you and your wife dying together. And she said, but just put a term period of two years on it. And so if I can't do the job in two years time, then the children can sack me. So she was putting, you know, I've built it. I know more about it than anybody else. So if you you and your... Mary go down in a plane over Rome, your children don't know anything about what you and I have done. So I'm the best one to look after that. That's, so that's in the estate planning thing. The other thing in the estate planning thing, and I'm not saying this because it's of interest, is sadly there's been so many divorces over recent years. Well, many times in the first marriage, the It is the struggling part, for example, to build businesses or whatever, then in the second marriage, things have got better financially. And so when I would meet with people and they told me that they had divorced because I'd asked them to have independence, and I'd say to them, do you have an estate equalization plan for your children? And without, like you just nodded Then everybody would say to me, like they nodded. that's a good question. No, I don't. And the majority said, I'm really concerned about this. It's the one thing that I because I've got all this I've built up all this, for example, wealth here, and how can I separate this current family from the first family? Well the the answer to that was they I mean the answer to that is to create another asset for the children of the first marriage. It's called life insurance. And so when he or she dies, everything that they wanted to leave to the children of that marriage is paid for by a third party. And the people in the second marriage, say the spouses, they're not. Nobody gets the nose out of joint out of that. And I think that's good planning. Then there's another one. I just finished this on brain, time, and integrity, because all we've got to offer our clients is our brain, our time, and our integrity. And the final chapter is uh, living the life of the professional um, financial advisor. So that took me, by the way, two years to write.
0: Yeah, amazing. It's certainly, uh, and as you mentioned, uh, a heck of a lot of preparation, obviously for filing cabinet drawers full of preparation and then a lot of sorting it all out and working out, you know, what your buckets were going to be. I've heard you talk about preparation before. Do you want to go into deeper into that, into preparation, especially for financial advisors before client meetings?
1: Yes. Uh, the, The book I've written on preparation came about, when I first started to think of it at an MDRT meeting where the the speaker opened his talk this way. Um, Preparation will make the dull person appear bright and the bright person appear brilliant. Lewis Neiser said it and I believe it. Now, I had no idea who Lewis Neiser was. And in those days, we didn't have the internet or whatever. But I was able to find out through my friends in the United States, he's a very successful lawyer in both the criminal and the civil area who never lost a case. And so in his book, he wrote a book called My Life in Court. And so, by the way, it's Lewis's, L-O-U-I-S, N-I-Z-E-R. And when his book was launched, apparently at the launching, somebody said, Lewis, can you just tell us in one word what made you so successful? And that's what he said that preparation will make you. So, I, what I'm saying to the advisors in the book is that if the opening comments set the tone for the rest of the meeting, then you should be well prepared. So, for me, the preparation should be the advisor seeing himself being interviewed. It's a job interview. He, the advisor being interviewed as a possible trusted advisor. So, if this is going to be a lifetime of your employment, you prepare for it. And I think, sadly, when they introduced the templated fact finders, you know, in the in the FSR, that all came in because there are so many advisors there, they had to have some control over them. And so these were prepared, generally speaking, by people who hadn't practiced, you see. So, if you've got one that is, it's, for, for me, for example, is Russellized. What I did was to work out, over the years, I got all these questions that I knew, the penetrating questions that people needed to be asked. Because when you ask somebody a penetrating question, when they answer the question, they're really giving you information about problems that they aren't even aware exist at that point in time. And then when you repeat those questions back in the file note you send back to them, the question you ask them and their answer, now they start to think more about their insurances and so on like that. So coming back to the preparation for me, if I was meeting with you, I would always go through, uh, pull out my list of questions and i go through them. And by the way, I did this and I don't train people to do this, but I used to then, uh, I then would write them, handwrite the questions. If I'm going to see Fraser Jack, what I know about him and whether I knew Minimal I used to put a lot of questions. If I knew what I wanted to do, I could sort of tailor it that way. So when I met with you, and uh, I handwrote these questions, and I had one of those folders that you open up, you know. So I said part of it would be I have no idea whether my ideas are going to be of any value to you, but we can sort that out over the next hour or so. If I can just run some questions past you that I've prepared especially for today's meeting, and then you open up the folder. And they say all these handwritten questions. They saw that. Now, I don't, I don't train to do that today, but what I felt was that gave the integrity that I had prepared. And, you know, when Matthew joined me in 1998, I said, Matt, just do what I ask you for a year. And then in, in 12 months' time, we'll sit down and you tell me what what works, what you don't like, whatever. And so at the end of 12 months, he said, Dad, there's only one thing. He said, I hate that running, writing stuff, you know. He said, "Um, I'm not good at that. And he said, it's so time-consuming. And I said, well, what's the... He said, well, I can develop a template of the questions. And he explained to me what a template was, put all the questions on that. And he said, I'll number them, and I'll just say the girls. I'm meeting with Fraser Jack. Here's his profile. I want you to give me questions. Four, six, 20, 80, and like that. And so they would then cut and paste them onto a piece of paper with an inch between each question for Matthew to write in. I said, well, wait a minute. Let's go back to the opening of the meeting when you say these questions that I've specially prepared. And they see this templated thing. He said, well, I thought you'd ask that. So he said, I've created another template. And on the front page of the template, in, in font size that you could see if you were six feet away, it would have meeting with Fraser Jack, the date, and then he'd put agenda. I prepared these questions so the is looking at it, you're at the other side of the table. You can see your name there in big letters. And then he would open it up and proceed with that way. Now the what what the preparation does that way, Fraser, and when you open the meeting, I've got these questions that I want to ask. That the people say, and I say, Is it okay if we proceed? They say, Yes, like let's get cracking on this. Well, they're giving you control of the meeting. Now, so you've opened the meeting in a positive manner. That's in the book, and then you, now you take control. So the, the most talkative person dominates the conversation, but the good listener controls it. So you're asking the question, you're listening, and you're writing at the same time. Now, in 1992, so that's 20 years after I started, I'm sitting there with a general manager of a, of a mid-sized public company, and. Um, I'm asking the questions. And he said, he put his hands up like this. He said, can we just stop for a minute? Like, put your pen down. He didn't say that, but put your pen down. He said, do you do this with everybody? Like he pointed out. I said, what? He said, well, ask questions and write down answers. I said, yeah. And he said, do you realize that's the greatest compliment you can pay anybody? To ask them a question and write down the answer. And I'd been doing that for 20 years. I had no idea. See those four questions that... When people meet with you the first time, do I like you? Do I trust you? Are you competent? Are you the sort of person you're going to put in my? Office? I think you start to answer these questions sub. That, they don't prepare for that. that subconsciously. But you're answering these questions as we're talking to it, you see. So by taking it down, then transferring it from that into a file note. So if I come back to preparation, what I found and what people train people to do is that they can now open the meeting. See, I'm writing down the questions I'm going to ask Fraser Jack. So I'm really rehearsing, mentally rehearsing what I'm going to say to Fraser Jack. So when I meet with Fraser Jack and start asking the questions, that's the second time that I've touched on these questions. And if you prepare, and I've got like maybe 30 questions, and you say something to me, and I could say to you, you know, that's a good point, but I was going to cover that later, but let me so I turn over, I go straight to that point, I'd answer what you said, and then I'd come back to where I was. I had nothing had been lost because I knew where I'd missed, left off on it. So when you've got control of the meeting, you know you know that the direction that's going on, and if they move you sideways, well you can still come back to where you were.
0: Can, can I just add something to that conversation around asking a question, listening for the answer? And then taking the time to write the answer because uh, often in a conversation and, and 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 you know we i do a lot of podcasts so i can get this way where you move on to the next question because you don't necessarily need to pause in, in in time uh but listening to an answer and then just pausing after it as you let it sink in is actually quite a compliment as well
1: but the, that's a very good point you see when i said before you're listening with the ear of the heart you, the, Yes, no questions, there's no, you know, it's you're attentive, of course you're writing it down, but what is that person saying? What does he mean when he says, the last thing in the world I want is for my family to be saddled with all this debt? And then you put in the file note, the last thing that I want is for my family to be saddled with all this debt. So that reminds him of what he said to you like that. So not only is the attentive listening good for Writing down everything like that, but it starts to develop the empathy. See, if you want to sell John Smith what John Smith buys, you got to see John Smith through John Smith's eyes. That's empathy. By the way, when I'm talking to financial planners, I say if I don't say if you want to sell Jim, I said if you want to advise him or something like that. But yeah. I go back to it, you know. You and I can talk about selling. We know it's not a dirty word and we know that every minute of every day somebody is selling somebody something.
0: Yeah. Now I want to touch on this chapter around um, uh – you know, brain time and integrity, I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's grabbed my interest. Um, talk to me about that chapter.
1: Well, the brain, see, we have nothing to offer ourselves but, as I said, brain time integrity. Now, the brain, what I talk about the brain is that we're more, advi- we're more educators than we are advisors. And the education starts with our own self-education. So when I used to start talking about these things at PD days and I didn't have my ideas about the workshops and uh, they'd be great. Oh, yes, let's do the workshop. So I'd say, well, this is what it's going to cost. This is, by the way, I've invited there by a dealer. So the dealer's sitting there. And I said, well, why should we have to pay for it? Because you, the point of the dealer, you're the ones that's getting the benefit of this. Well, I think that's pretty short-sighted. So what I'm talking about is self-investment investing in the most important um, skill that you have is your communication skills. So, I can tell you that I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars over 40 years investing in my communication skills. Now, if that was four or five hundred dollars, uh, four or five hundred thousand, if you divide that by 40, it breaks it down. But, you know, in... 1973, going to America, uh, I had to borrow the money from my father to attend that meeting. But that was an investment. So you learn an idea. The chap that said um, what Lewis Nizer said, you know, about preparation, he had an idea that I took away from that, that's 1980, and that I wrote tens of millions of dollars of insurance on one idea. I'm not talking about remuneration. So, Fraser, what did that, what is the cost of that trip, which might have been five or six thousand dollars, what did that reward reward me as a percentage return on that? So, you, I, I say this to you, you owe it to your advisors to become the best you that you can be. Now, with Fascia and uh, other things, Academic qualifications are important, but you could be the highest qualified person in industry and starve to death at the same time because of your inability to communicate that knowledge with people. So it's for me, it's investing, and uh, 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 it's, it, that's a third of that particular chapter on that. It's seeking, where can I go? What I mean, all these things are available that are going to help you with your communication skills. Now, with time, the one thing that I notice with people who are good at selling they're poor at time management and they're poor at administration so there's only 24 hours in the day well how i got this idea was at the mdrt meeting i went to in 973 A spoke there his name was alec mckenzie and he's written a book called the time trap a bestseller in corporate america and the theme of the book is nobody ever has enough time yet we all have 24 hours and that's which is all the time we have. It's how we use the time. And so what I found out that to get what I needed to get done each day is that I had to prepare in advance for each day. So I got up. It's all in the all in the book. I got up very early in the morning and I would spend an hour working out what I was going to do in that day. And I had, I've given templates in the book as to how to do that. But what I needed to do was to uh, have my day laid out and then in those days, I would fax that ahead to the, to the staff. I might be, and so they knew who I was meeting. Uh, I also listed all my phone calls for the day because we didn't have cell phones in those days. And I'd send them through. So if people rang in, I'm not there. They knew why the people were ringing because I'd on like that. So brain, your time. And so the time factor is how to make, like I meet new advisors. So I say, how many appointments are you having a week? And I say three or four. And when you ask them why, it's they're bogged down with stuff that they shouldn't be doing. Like if your time's worth $100 an hour, why would you be doing $20 an hour work? That's the point. And for the argument, well, I can't afford to hire somebody, I'd say, well, how much would it going to cost to hire them? So let's say in those days, well, it cost me $60,000 a year. i say, well, you're not going to pay them $60,000 in the first month. You're going to pay them $5 a month for 12 months. So if you, so what I show in the book is to measure your time, this is what Alec McKenzie's taught us, write down all your activities that you do every day, run it for a month in 15 minute slides, the date, the day of the week, the time, 8 to eight fifteen or whatever, the activity, and then another column that says, can this be delegated, yes or no? And so at the end of each day, you've got all the whys and all the ends. But all the whys then give you a job specification for somebody to, so they can start and say, here's what I want you to do. I mean, I've sat with people, the girls say, well, the first two weeks I did nothing because he didn't know what he wanted to tell me. Do you follow me? But if you've got a job spec, you say, here's what I want you to do. So the brain, the time, the integrity is where, you know, this is a problem in our industry at the moment. And, I mean, it's in, it's in every industry, not just our industry. It's in every, I mean, it's wherever you want to go. And so everybody knows, like, values and morals. The morals, everybody knows the difference between right and wrong. I mean, I don't want to oversimplify it. And the values are the things that have made us, as we go along the way, they're, you know, they relate to our character and our behavior. And so you develop them over there. But, you know, people buy people. And if that fourth question in those four questions is, are you the sort of person that, that will put my best interest before your own? So you can't have two sets of values. You can't have, I'm meeting with Fraser Jack values, and then I'm going out for a party with the boys, or something like that values. And people pick that up in your, I mean, if you met one of your best clients out at the races and you were, you fill with alcohol, it wouldn't go over well. You know, I'm I'm not trying to
0: no, I'm not I,
1: trying to be critical. Yeah, I'm not I'm not standing in judgment, but I'm just saying that the people are people buy you.
0: Yes, yes, well, I think uh, that's uh, that-
1: what it is. And and ethics is you know it's it's become a subject in the, whatever it is that they're doing. And uh, and by the way, my grandson uh, Timothy, who he told me. He, he said, I, I didn't think I could learn anything from it, but he said the examples that they gave, he said, at the corporate level, I never thought about. So there is a level. I mean, I'm oversimplifying it as it, you know, right from wrong. Yeah. But what Frank Sullivan used to say, and I learned this at MDRT, he say, when you've prepared a presentation and you're ready to go, stand in front of a mirror and say to yourself, knowing what I know, if I was in Fraser's shoes would I buy what I'm proposing? And he said, if the answer isn't a resounding yes, sit down and go back to the drafting board. Now, I never used to stand in front of the mirror, but I tell you, I asked that question myself many times. And when I thought, no, I, I think I can do better, well, I'll go back and do it, prepare it.
0: Fantastic. Now, uh, now, Russell, the book's called um, Skills That Succeed. Uh, and as you mentioned before, is a communication guide, if, if anything else. Um, Tell us about, uh, obviously, you've got the book. Uh, where can people find it? And also, for those that uh, don't do a lot of reading, um, maybe they're a podcast listener and they like to listen to uh, audio files. Talk to us about that.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, well, the book, uh, my website is RICS, Risk Insurance Communication Skills, that's R I C S dot com dot A U. And on there, you can uh, find out about me and social media and uh, where to buy the book, you can buy the ebook and the uh, printed book off me on that website. But with the audio book, um, it's done, you you can buy it from the website, but you're buying it overseas, you know, and all these other platforms. And the reason that you, I I mentioned my daughter, Kristen, she's the youngest. When the book came out, after about two years, she said, you know, dad, you ought to do an audio book. Like I didn't even know an audio book was. And uh she's self employed and she listens to a lot of podcasts and stuff like that. Anyway, she hammered away and uh then I you know Gavin you, of course.
0: Yes, you know Gavin. Then
1: about three or four years ago. He uh was we were at an AFA conference and he said, How's the book going? And I said, Well, unless I can get the audiences to speak, you know, I can't sell the book. So he said, How's your marketing? I said I'll leave that to you. So he sort of took over my marketer, but he also said, We've got to do the audio book. And um, so I put a team together with Gavin, uh, my IT consultant, Matthew McGregor, and, and my daughter, Kristen. And so um, that's where the audio book was born. So now, and then how long did it take me to record the audio book? Two years. Now, I, I didn't do it nine for five because your voice goes on you. But what I found doing the audio book is that I have to change the expression because it's not written; it's got to be explained. But Kristen has told me, she said Dad, she said that new, they don't read books anymore. Like they want to listen to podcasts and stuff like that. And so that's why we launched that, which was last um, last December. So you go to the website, and then for the audio book, it's got a, about half a dozen, or maybe more, eight or nine different platforms that you can use to buy it.
0: Fantastic, Russell. Thanks for coming on and chatting to us on the podcast today. Uh, what are the plans for the future?
1: Well, we're at the stage in our life where we have grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and it's important that we spend time together. For the sake of your audience, I want to say this, or for the information to your audience, no success in the field is worth a failure in the home. And I learned that very early. I mean, this job can choke you to death with the work. And today I see people walking around almost chained to their cell phones, particularly on weekends. You go into, um, cafes or restaurants and they're sitting there with this thing and it glows and they look at their, I mean, that's not, if it's your wife, I think that's an insult, you know, but anyway, I've, I just make the point that relationships, it's, you, you work too hard in this job. When I came in the industry, I was told I'd have to work. 20 hours a week in that first year i worked 70 80 hours a week so when you're working monday to friday like 60 hours try and give the you know the family the balance of your time by the way finding that balance is is really really tough so what am i doing i'm i'm struggling with my golf game i've had um I've got the same handicap that I had 30 years ago, but I've got more time to work on it. Uh, but we just, we're just up here in tea gardens. It's a, it's a change in lifestyle, and it's an, operation, it's an opportunity for us to grow even closer together up here.
0: Fantastic. Russell, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate you uh, coming on and having a chat to us today um, about your 40-year career. Uh, well, that was before you even writ, writ, written the book, but, uh, yeah, I just really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Good on you. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: Well, there you have it. Another episode of the XY Advisor podcast. I'm Fraser Jack, joined by Emily Blanche. Hello, Emily. Hello, Fraser. Great, great podcast, great discussion, by the way. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. And it's our time time for the, the, uh, the cool part where we get to, uh, you know, highlight some of, the, some of the great work the XY members are doing in the community. Yes. So today I want to give a shout out to XY Advisor Julian McGoldrick. Now, Julian has jumped in to a few discussions recently and added some really thoughtful comments. You can tell he's really taken the time to think um, and provide some really valuable answers, uh, sharing his experiences and his approach in the way that he does things. So, yes, Julian, thank you for being a legend. Thank you for getting involved. The thoughtfulness and the value that you've shared to discussions certainly does not go unnoticed.